This semester we've been going through the book of Colossians. Uh, most of y'all have been here and paying attention. And what Paul's describing in this book, he's talking to this church in the first century about what the Christian life looks like and uh, about you know what God is doing in Christ in His people. And one kind of key thing that we've tried to say all along um, about what Christianity is, and, and certainly this is what Paul's warning against as well and why he clarifies is we're prone to think that the purpose of Christianity is to make good people, is to teach people how to improve their lives and how to become better people. That's not what God is doing. That's not his plan for redemption, is to, learn, is to teach you how to make you better. God is making a new humanity for a new heavens and a new earth. That's what redemption is. Making a new humanity for a new heavens and a new earth. God's making a new society. He's not improving people. He's making new people. This is why we have the term born again. When Jesus talks to Nicodemus and John, he says, you must be born again. This is why we were called new creations. This is why we were called the new man. We're not the old people being made better. We're new people being made better new again. And the people of the kingdom of God, which is the church, I don't mean the building, I don't necessarily mean the membership role, but the people who trust in Jesus and their, for their salvation and who delight in Him, um, those, that's the new humanity for the new heavens and new earth. And, um, and the difference between that humanity and the society that God's creating and all others is that it's not culturally conditioned. It's not culturally informed. It's not Western it's not white, it's not upper middle class, it's not capitalistic, it's not free market, it's not socialistic, it's not democratic. Uh, its principles transcend all of cultures, and its precepts transcend all of time, because it's not describing an upper middle class Western society. It's describing redeemed humanity. And its purpose is not, the purpose of Christianity is not the protection of our right to life, liberty, property, and the pursuit of happiness. That's not what God's in it for. Its purpose is the glory of its king. The purpose of the new humanity is the glory of the king. And Paul describes how we glorify the king in the most meaningful day-to-day, day-in-day-out relationships that we live in, which is our relationships of family and work. And that's what he's doing here. What's happened all throughout the book of Colossians, what you've hopefully felt if you've been reading through it as he's done this theology and he's been describing how Jesus is redeeming all things, who Jesus is. And what happens is after he's developed that for a couple of chapters, he begins to give us application, practical application of then what it looks like to be the new humanity. And so the last couple of weeks we've talked about things you had to put off. And last week we talked about the things that you had to put on and these were virtues and vices that we struggle with. And today he gives us very practical, concrete relationships and describes what the new humanity looks like inside of these relationships. So this is the Word of God. We're going to read Colossians 3, verse 18 through chapter 4, verse 1. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your your reward. 
You are serving the Lord Christ. And the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, as we consider your word, um, we come in here with all kinds of different hearts and distractions and anxieties. And sometimes we think we're supposed to set them aside, dear God, but I pray that right now we would hold them out in our hands um, and let your word speak to them. We come in here with all kinds of uh, relational distresses and relational um, just ugliness in our lives. And I pray we wouldn't set those aside as we walk in here, dear God, but we would hold them out before you and with your spirit and with your word. You'd work change in our lives, dear Jesus. We need you to be with us now. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, C.S. Lewis' book, The Weight of Glory, is a series of essays. Uh, and he has this essay, incidentally, on church membership. It's not what we're going to talk about. But this is what he says at the beginning of the essay. No, question, no Christian, and indeed no historian, could accept the epigram which defines religion as, in quotes, what a man does with his solitude. It was one of the Wesleys, I think, who said that the New Testament knows nothing of solitary religion. We are forbidden to neglect the assembling of ourselves together. Christianity is already institutional in the earliest of its documents. The church is the bride of Christ, and we are members of one another. In our own age, that, that, uh, the idea that religion belongs to our private life, that is, in fact, an occupation for the individual's hour of leisure, is dangerous. So what C.S. Lewis has to say about what I think Paul is hitting on here. And in some ways, really kind of the simple point of this text is this. Your Christianity is manifested in your relationships. We typically think about our spiritual life as being something that we do privately in the, the privacy of our own homes and in the privacy of our own head and hearts between us and Jesus. There's an element to that. That's even central. It is never, ever only that. And the primary theater through which your Christian life manifests itself, is your relationships. See, we often have, we, we kind of struggle with a false view of spirituality and a false view of relationships. Our false view of spirituality is this, is we think our spiritual lives, again, is something that takes place privately between us and God. And this is, this is my point. True faith works from the inside out. And there's two sides of that. It does work from the inside. It very much has to do with your heart and how it relates to Jesus and God, but it always works out. True faith works from the inside out. At its most fundamental level, Christian faith is when Jesus turns our hearts toward him and we come to him in faith, trusting him and delighting in him for our salvation. And it's a heart thing, and it starts there. And the Bible is full of warnings about religion that looks good on the outside, and on the inside there's no living faith in Jesus, no growing love for Jesus. And there are a lot of incentives for looking religious on the outside, but never actually coming to any saving knowledge for Jesus. Christianity is from the inside, but it's from the inside, and it works out. Relationships are the primary theater context in which we live out our Christianity, all of our relationships. James tells us, he says, faith by itself that does not have works is dead. And what he's he's not saying 
is that our works save us. What he's saying is that our works reveal our faith or reveal our lack of faith. Because what he's saying is true faith has external consequences. It is, it is in the inside, it is a hard issue, but it always works out. Paul always, what we've been doing, Colossians, kind of like I said, he always begins with theology. He always begins with the work and the person of Jesus, the transcendent glory of God and what he's, he's doing in redemption. And then Paul later in his letter goes to application. We've called it indicative, who we are in Jesus, and imperative, what he then commands us to do. And when he gets to describing the Christian life, it is deeply, deeply relational. Our relationships are the primary context, the stage, the theater, the place where our Christianity works out. When you look at the fruits of the Spirit, they're all social. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. These are all social things. You can't have the fruit of love unless people are there. You can't have the fruit of kindness unless people are there. You can't have the fruit of peace unless there are people to be at peace with. You can't have the fruit of patience unless people are there. You can't actually exhibit these without other people. Our spirituality, our Christianity, is relational. That's our faulty view of spirituality. Sometimes we think it's something that takes place in the privacy of our own heads. Um, But we also have a faulty view of relationships. And uh, and maybe this one's actually harder to self-diagnose in all of us, but it's certainly true of all of us. Um, When you think about the person that you're struggling with right now, uh, whoever it is, we all have multiple people we can think of. Um, this is what we think the fundamental problem is. This is what I think the fundamental problem with Catherine is right now. She's the child I'm struggling with. I love her. She's dear. She's the one I'm struggling with. I think that she doesn't get, she doesn't love, she doesn't listen to, she doesn't respect, she doesn't trust me. And that's the problem. If she would just get it, like if Catherine would just listen to me, if she would just trust me, it would all be fine. That's not what Paul has here for us. The, prob- the person you have a problem with right now, the fundamental problem in that relationship is actually this. Your problem with that person, even if they've legitimately sinned against you, even if Catherine has legitimately not listened to me and disobeyed her father, the problem is that I don't get, and I don't listen to, and I don't trust, and I don't respect Jesus. Your problem with your roommate, who's legitimately sinned against you, is that you don't get, you don't trust, you don't respect, you don't listen to or love Jesus. problem with our friendships, dating, parents, teachers, whatever it is, is not, the problem is not them not understanding you. It's actually you not understanding Jesus. And this goes for all our situations that we think, oh, but it doesn't apply to this. But you don't know what she said. You don't know what they did. It applies to all of those. And that leads to the first point for the purpose of the relationships. Christ is transforming our relationships. So we have to discover, first of all, what is the purpose? And Paul kind of just nails us with the purpose all over these passages. In nine verses, he gives us the purpose seven times. It kind of keeps coming back to you. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Slaves, in everything, obey those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, knowing that from the Lord you will receive inheritance. You are serving the Lord Christ. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master, the Lord, 
in heaven. You know, he's kind of packed it in a couple of verses. It's all in this kind of obnoxious how many times he hits us over the head with the purpose of our relationships with other people. The purpose of our relationships with other people is the glory of the king. The purpose of submitting, loving, obeying, not provoking, working, dealing justly and fairly, the purpose is the Lord and his glory. Paul is actually just kind of continuing and exploding what he said in verse 17 that we looked at last week. Whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of Lord Jesus. And what we said last week was that, and, and we're kind of further developing it, is the purpose of your relationships is not you. It's not your comfort. It's not your ease. It's not your leisure. And it's not your glory. It's not your name becoming great. It is to make known, to please, and to honor, and to serve Jesus. And that sounds like an empty cliche because we use it so often. But here's an illustration that I think helps us kind of understand it. Um, during, I had a lot of different summer jobs. I've told you all stories about several of them. One of the ones I liked doing the most was landscaping. Wherever I lived at the time, I'd call landscaping companies and get a landscaping job. Um, when I landscaped, I worked like any high school, college-age person worked. Uh, I did what I wanted to do on the days that it was convenient. When I wanted to make more money, I worked harder longer. When I didn't care as much and I was tired, I worked less. Uh, there were days where I cared about people. Uh, um, wanting to th- I wanted people to think I worked hard. There were people where I didn't care whether or not they thought I worked hard. There was a cost-benefit, and I just thought, today I don't care if they think I'm going to relax. And I worked in that relationship according to my own interests. And, uh, and some days it meant I worked hard. Some days it meant I didn't work as hard. And I enjoyed those jobs, but there's a different job, set of jobs that I actually had growing up, too, on other summers. I worked at a food service distribution company, and uh, I, I was cleaning the warehouse. I was a warehouse janitor. Um, I washed their trucks. They have 18-wheelers, washed their trucks. Um, did a lot of menial labor there, a lot of manual labor. But I worked there in a totally different manner. And I worked there in a totally different manner because the name of the company was Wood Farms. And it was my dad's company. And I did the lowest job on the totem pole. But every day when I walked in, people looked at me and I bore the name of the boss. And that really changes the way I worked. Because I didn't just affect my relationship with my coworkers, it affected their relationship with my dad. And so I cleaned the warehouse not for my paycheck. I cleaned the warehouse to honor my dad's name so that these men would honor and respect my dad. I cleaned trucks. I didn't do it for the mechanic. But I did it to reflect my dad, the mechanic. I cleaned out. There's this nasty pit where, where all the old food over months would collect, and they'd wash it out after a couple of months, like produce and stuff. Months in Birmingham, Alabama in July. Um, <laughs> I got in there, man, in like all rubber suit and everything and cleaned it out because my dad loved me. And when there were problems and when people criticized me, I shut my mouth. And I listened, and I took it, but the accurate and inaccurate criticism, and I considered it. And the reason why is because I bore a name there, and it affected the way people thought about my boss. And you see, when we realize that there's a third party, in every relationship you're in, there's a third party, there's the boss whose name you bear, when you realize that, it changes the way you react and relate to everybody. 
that when you walk into the classroom, you're walking into the classroom as the boss's son, the boss's daughter. It's the king's son, the king's daughter. When you walk into your rooming situation, you walked in as the king's daughter, the king's son. When you walked into your family, you walked in as the king's son and the king's daughter. When you're working for the boss's son, you work a totally different way, especially when the boss loves you. A couple of points of application. First is this, very simple. Jesus is the primary audience for our relationships. We don't see him. We only hear from him in Scripture. Every now and then you get to have a meal with him, but he's the person for whom we live out our relationships. And so we do what is fitting of the name we bear. We do what is fitting of the name that we bear. What would it look like for you to live out on campus in the Russell House, live out the reality that you're the king's son? How would that change the way you approach work, relationships, roommates? It means that Jesus is the primary audience for relationships. It also means this. Verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord. It means this, and we kind of said this earlier in the semester. There's no task too menial that you can't make it into worship and service of the king. Jesus doesn't really care about what you do so much as how you do it. There's no menial task. Working at Subway and working at an uh, investment bank doesn't matter. Jesus doesn't care if you do either one of those. What matters is how you do it. Are you reflecting the king's name? Jesus is the primary audience for our relationships. There's no task too small that it can't be an uh, act of worship. But lastly, not just some of the time, but oftentimes and maybe even most of the time, you'll be called to relate to a person in a way that they don't deserve. Because we're not called to relate to them according to what they've done to us. We've been called to relate to them according to what Jesus has done for us. When Paul tells the women to submit, he doesn't say, submit to husbands who are worthy of it. When he tells husbands to love, he doesn't say, love wives that are lovable. And most significantly, he says to slaves, and slavery is different then. It wasn't race-based. It was economic-based, but in a lot of ways, it was no less egregious. You know what he says? He doesn't say, we need it down with this institution of slavery. He says, this is where you are, and this is what it looks like to be, to follow Christ in this situation. Serve your masters heartily well. Serve them with all of your being. And you see, all of our relationships, this is the way a friend of mine, uh, the RUF guy at Virginia said it. He said, all of our relationships are little gospel dramas. Your relationship with your roommate, relationship with the people you don't get along with and the people you do get along with, your parents and your professors, are, are gospel dramas. They are places where because you bear the name of Christ, you are representing Christ and enacting and actually portraying the gospel to people. Those are all little plays, little dramas, little theaters in which the gospel is put on. The purpose of our relationships is the glory of the Lord, to make known the gospel, to make his name great. What is the pattern? In this text, Paul kind of surveys some fundamental relationships. Um, the letter's kind of gone again from this rich theological discourse uh, into intensely practical, concrete application. We talked about vices and virtues we should put off and put on the last couple of weeks, and then all of a sudden, boom. Here's some particular relationships with particular 
directives. Now, why does he give us these places? Because he essentially gives us home life and work life. And I think it's because of this. You are who you are in those places, at home and at work. What we're prone to think is that home and work are obstacles and places where we bide our time until we can get on with our life. But Paul actually, and actually Scripture actually uh, indicates, that's where you are who you are, in your home. And actually also where you work, which for most of you is actually in school. That's where you are who you are. And the reason why he goes to those places is because, you know what, for three hours a week, you can be anybody. You can come to RUF on Tuesday night and fool anybody. You can be a young life leader and fool anybody. You can go to First Pres on Sunday and Sunday evening and fool anybody. Those are easy. Those are the easy places. Who are you at home? Who are you in your work? That's who you are. The first thing, the first words we have recorded where God talks to man for the first time in all of history, the first things he says is this, have a family and work. Have a family and work. That's what he says in Genesis 1. So what, are we, what does Paul say? What does he speak in these contexts? He gives us three kind of couplets. And the first one is, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord, and husbands, love your wives. Do not be embittered with them. And inside, of, in the middle of each of these couplets, there's that grounding statement. right? Wives, submit to your Lord. Uh, submit to your husband as is fitting to the Lord. And husbands, Love your wives and do not be embittered with them. All right, so here's like one of our favorite unpopular words of Christianity, right? Submission. Wives, submit to your husband. Here's what it's not. It's not domination and it's not domineering. It's not a statement of inferiority. And it's not actually given to husbands. The command is not husbands force your wives to submit. And people have used the first this way. It's regrettable. And people have used it to denigrate women and to oppress women, and that's repulsive, and Jesus hates it. And I wish it had never happened. And we've all seen it. But the word submit is actually the same word that's used to describe Jesus. When, he t- when uh, in Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 15, and Philippians talks about Jesus submitting to the Father. Now, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He is of equal power and glory and substance of the Father. They are the same. They are equal, and yet he submits to him. Within Scripture, it's very clear, equality and submission coexist, meaning submission does not imply inequality or inferiority. So what does it mean then? It's a command to trust. Paul illustrates kind of more fully in Ephesians 5, this same command at the church at Ephesus, when he tells the wives, submit to your husbands. The husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and, uh, and is himself its Savior. As the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit in everything to your husband. A woman's submission to her husband is the same thing as the church's submission to Christ. It is trust, is resting in him. And wives are called, girls, you're called away from the tendency to manipulate, to conjole, to harass, whatever it is, the ways... Some of, you, some of y'all will be prone to overt ways. Some of you will be prone to subtle ways of manipulating your man, which is not trusting him, of making him into the person that you wish he was because you don't trust him. And it's a call away to that. And it's a call to be aware of actually the very subtle forms of manipulation. You're called to trust your husband, and that's joined 
with a husband's call to love their wives. And Paul, again, Ephesians is where he kind of more fully illustrates it. Same command. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he may sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. See, the command to given husbands, if there's a reason to be upset, upset here, women, it's actually this. The command given to husbands might be more demanding. They're called to die for you. The man you married is called to die in order to make you beautiful to Jesus. That is the calling of every husband. Men, when you get married, this is your calling as a husband. is to make your bride beautiful to Jesus. That's it. You build your whole understanding of being a husband off of that. And he says, and it's interesting that he says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. He also warns us, Paul says, don't be bitter with your wife, is actually what he's saying. He's talking about the husband's attitude. Don't be bitter towards your wife. The reason he tells us that is because Jesus didn't die for his bride and then grow embittered with his bride when she didn't love him, when she didn't always follow him, when she didn't obey him. And that would be our tendency, to make a huge sacrifice for somebody and then not get the respect back that we should get. It would be to grow bitter. But in fact, Jesus didn't grow bitter. He kept pursuing his bride. He kept dying for her. He kept serving her. A couple of applications. This isn't a dating or a marriage sermon. But there are a couple of applications that we can still take here. Girls, if you can't trust him, stop dating him. And, and I know you might be struggling with that now. And, and the pain of breaking up seems hard. And I know it's hard and you've spent time together. But if he's not trustworthy, then the short-term pain of breaking up now is much better than the long-term pain of an ongoing relationship with a jerk. If you can't trust him, stop dating him. The way a friend of mine kind of uh, advice he gave is, everybody sounds trustworthy. Everybody can say, I love you, I will always love you. Everybody can sound trustworthy. Here's what you do. Don't be fooled by the audible, I love you, I love yous. Look at the visible, I love yous. I'm not talking about romantic acts. I'm talking saying, does he have character? In his relationships. Does he have character in class among friends with parents at work? One more brief, unpopular point of application. Only because me and Soren are the only two married people in here. Um, uh, at this point, oh, and Christian, and Christian. Uh, to the unmarried, how do, y'all, how do you relate to somebody you're not married to? Uh, I can only tell you what Scripture says. In 1 Timothy 5, 2, treat younger women as sisters with all purity. How do you relate to someone you're not married to? You treat younger women with sisters as sisters with all purity. This is what it means. It means you touch them and you kiss them and you fantasize about them the same way you do with your brother and your sister. And if you think, Britain, that's tough. I know, it is. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. And that's exactly what Paul says. (sighs) (laughs) Children, in all things obey your parents, for this is pleasing to the Lord. And fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. And Paul's speaking to the church. And he's not speaking to the situation where a parent calls you to sin against the Lord. And that's certainly different. And you're called to follow the Lord. And he's talking to children. 
He's talking to a group of people who are growing up within their parents' household, meaning they're not grown up yet. So if you're still dependent on your parents, this text is for you. If you're growing up and are still dependent, what he is saying is that this is what pleases the Lord, full obedience to your parents. And some of y'all, maybe many of y'all have had horrible parents. That sucks. And many of y'all have good parents, and that's wonderful. And all of us have complained about our parents. With, probably, we're probably legitimate about 25% of the time, and 75% of our complaints are illegitimate. But that's another story. But regardless of what the situation is, go be Jesus to your parents. And go be Jesus by obeying them and loving them and submitting to them instead of bucking against them and pushing them and fighting hard enough to make their, your case so that they'll see your way, so that they'll see. See what happens if you just obey. See what happens. And some of y'all have been discouraged by your parents. When Paul says, fathers, don't provoke your children lest they be discouraged, he's saying don't exasperate them and destroy their spirit and discourage them. And that's hard and like, I haven't, been a, I haven't been a parent for very long. And I can already see the ways I discourage and provoke my children. And it sucks. It's the worst part of my day. It's the worst part of my week. It's the worst part of my life. And I've exasperated them and I've provoked them. And your parents did it to you. And you'll do it to your kids. And when your parents do it to you, when I do it to my kids... Um, we haven't taught them about who the Heavenly Father is. When the girls look at me, my goal as a father, what it means to be a Christian father is when they look at me, I can display to them the Heavenly Father. And I've messed that up. And your parents have messed that up. And here's your call. Obey them. Obey them. They've made you believe that you're loved or you're valued because of your performance, because you've done the right things instead of just because you're theirs. And I'm sorry, and that's horrible. Your Heavenly Father is your true Father. Your Heavenly Father loves you because you are His and He made you His and His love is elaborate. Go home and love your mother and your father. Go home and obey them for Jesus. The last relationship he speaks into is kind of is the most interesting because he speaks into the institution of slavery. Again, it's different. It's more economic-based. Poor people were enslaved as opposed to race-based, a certain race of people being enslaved, so it's different from what we encounter in the United States. But he doesn't address the institution. He doesn't address the institution of slavery, which is horrible. He addresses the Christians that are living in it. And that means something for actually the way we go about our lives, because our superiors, the masters you serve at this point in time, are your professors. It's your full-time work. That's your calling here on campus. And when Paul doesn't address the fact that the masters are engaging in slavery and instead says, slaves, work heartily for your masters, this is what this means. Bad bosses, bad managers, bad professors, bad co-workers, ineffective teachers are not excuses for bad work on our part. In verse 25, there's a reminder, the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. God's telling you, no, 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 I understand justice, and I'll take care of it. It's not your job to execute justice by being a bad student. They're a bad teacher, so I don't have to care. Verse 25 is a reminder, God's handling it. 
your job is to do your work. And not to do it with eye service or people pleasing. And those things are insufficient because he's saying, do it as for the Lord. People pleasing means I just do it so that the people around me are pleased with how much work I've done. It's a whole different standard from doing it as unto the Lord. Here's what Paul's saying here. Your schoolwork, he actually says this, your work is your service to the Lord. Your work is your service to the Lord. It's not kind of like it or similar to it or analogous to it. He actually says that. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive uh, the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. When you work, you are doing your service to the Lord. Your schoolwork is your service to the Lord. Like whether or not you go to Heartworks or to RUF or to Young Life or Midtown, whatever, that's great. I hope you do those things. Paul right here is saying, hey, by the way, all of your schoolwork every day is your service to the Lord. It doesn't mean that every Christian gets an A. That's not what it means. It does mean that you approach your class and you approach your schoolwork with integrity. That means not cheating, and it also means telling the professor when you have cheated. It means approaching it with diligence. That means doing the work and doing it well with respect. That means giving deference to and honor to the professor. It means doing it with humility. That means not assuming that you know better, but rather being in a teachable position. And the great temptation in work and in class is to disrespect, to gripe, and to complain, and to mock, and run away from your superiors and from your service to the Lord. And maybe even with good excuses. Every paper, every assignment, every class, every test is demonstrating and, and every opportunity you have to demonstrate respect for your superiors, which, is, uh, which all of these things will hold true in your career as well. All of these things are your service to the Lord. How you act reveals the one who you serve. What would your professors say they've learned about Jesus because you've been in their class? That's the question. It's a hard question. In your jobs, what would your manager say they've learned about Jesus because you've been working for them? It doesn't mean you shared the four spiritual laws with everybody necessarily. It might just mean that you're respectful and that you're diligent and that you're honest and that you're humble. What if we all walked into our classes that way? Those are kind of brief pictures of the patterns of some of the fundamental relationships, and they are hard. And so the question remains, how do we do that? Because they're hard, and we don't fully get there. And keep in mind what Paul has already told the church in Colossae. He's not talking to what we would think of as a bunch of super-Christians, like they've got their lives together. Previously, he said, hey, by the way, you've got to put to death sexual immorality. You've got to put to death anger, lust, um, covetousness, evil desires, idolatry. Paul knows, Jesus knows, that we're broken. That this stuff, this inside-outness of Christianity, it takes time. And slowly and surely the gospel becomes more beautiful to us and Jesus becomes sweeter to us. And these things work into us. Now, how do they work? In the middle of that couplet to the slaves and the masters, you kind of lose rhythm there for a second in the text. Because there's this kind of easy rhythm to the wives and the husbands, to the children and the parents. Then all of a sudden, slaves obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. This is what he says in verse 24, knowing 
that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. What's he saying? He's reminding us of what Christ has done. What he's not saying is, here's how you can earn your inheritance. It's not what he's saying. The inheritance is spoken of here is not an inheritance you can earn as a slave. That doesn't make any sense. An inheritance isn't earned. It's secured for a child by the promises of the child's father based on nothing more than the father's goodwill and the child's good standing within the family. Inheritance is secured for a child by the promises of his father. And it's based on nothing more than the father's goodwill and the child's good standing in the family. And you see, the father has shown his incomprehensible goodwill by sending Jesus to secure our good standing as his sons and daughters. Because we're orphans, because we're undeserving. We've given up our inheritance, and yet by his blood, Jesus made us sons and daughters of the king. This verse is not a threat of a losing an inheritance. It's a reminder of a sure promised inheritance. And if you've been listening to the ethics of the kingdom and the way to relate in these relationships in the classroom, in your dating relationships, in your family relationships, you'll feel like me crushed by them. Because I look at them and I'm like, that's not me. It's not me with my children. That's not me with my wife. That's who I'm supposed to be. And the power to be transformed slowly from the inside out is the person of Jesus. Jesus hasn't called us to anything he hasn't already been on our behalf. He loved us as a perfect husband, literally dying to make his bride beautiful. His father asked him to die for us, and in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus sweated blood, praying, God, don't make me do this. But when push came to shove, Jesus was the perfectly obedient child. The father hasn't provoked us. He's quieted us with his love, and he's encouraged us, not with a threat of losing his favor, he's encouraged us with the promise of never removing his favor. And he's the master who became a slave to the servants. And even when his servants didn't like him, and even when they didn't understand him, and denied him, and took him to the cross, and ignored him, he served them. And he's the master who's dealt with his servants far more fairly, far more justly than they ever deserved. He hasn't given us recompense what we deserve. He's given us what Jesus deserved. We were called to relate to people not according to what they've done, but according to what Jesus has done for us. These are all things he's done for us, and that's how the gospel transforms our relationships. We don't treat people the way they treat us. We treat people the way Jesus treated us. When I worked for my dad at Wood Farms, I was telling Tyler earlier, um, the high point of my employment there was I got my commercial driver's license and drove trucks. And um, some, many of y'all have heard this story, but uh, for a summer I drove big rigs. It was kind of awesome, but mostly horrible. Um, <laughs> one morning I got out there, and when you get there, you start off in the morning around 3 or 4 in the morning. When you get there, you have to go get your cab, which is the truck, and hook it up to the trailer. They're on separate sides of the parking lot. When I got my cab, and I backed it up to the trailer, and then you get out. Y'all are going to see where this is going real quickly. And you, there are all these safety inspections you do to make sure the trailer is, in fact, connected to the cab. Thought I did my safety inspections and start 
pulling out of the parking lot, get about 100 yards across the parking lot, and then I thought Jesus came back. Um, <laughs> because the entire world around me lit up and shook. Um, but what actually happened was the trailer sits on what's called a fifth wheel on the back, and as I drove across the parking lot, the trailer actually fell off the back of the truck. When it did that, it popped the truck up in the air. Also keep in mind, this is in front of about 50 to 60 other truckers. Um, I've never had an adrenaline shot. Like, I could have run a 4140 at that moment. I could have bench pressed 450 pounds. I could have, like, changed the world. I could have done any, any physical uh, <laughs> test you could put before me. Never had an adrenaline shot like that. I'm, like, getting an adrenaline shot just thinking about it. Like, oh, man, that was horrible. Four o'clock in the morning, drop the trailer, damage the trailer and the truck. Um, and I called the boss, who's my dad. And in one of my moments of deepest shame, this is what he said, Dad, 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 I dropped a trailer. <laughs> and this is all he said. He just said, it's okay, son, we'll take care of it. How do you think I went about working for him for the rest of my time there? His love, his care, his gentleness, and his mercy propelled me to work harder and to be a kinder man among his employees. Because I wanted to know what my dad was like. Let's pray.